The police didn't know what they had in their hands. They didn't know if it was a kidnapping or a crime or just a runaway or whatever. And by the time they knew that they had a murder, and by the time real law enforcement got involved, it was too late. Only in the, under the rarest of circumstances should photographs ever be introduced into the trial, particularly of a brutally murdered child. Uh, that's just, um, uh, you know, unconscionable that a jury has, uh, has to see that. And of course, it's uh, highly inflammatory and prejudicial. I give the prosecutors high marks on timing uh, and technique, low marks on getting the right person to face justice. Hosted by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane, this is The Shattered Window. The second week of the trial focused quite heavily on the forensic evidence involved in the case. One of the most lurid moments of the trial came when Cook County Medical Examiner Robert J. Stein took to the stand to detail Jacqueline's injuries and show photographs of her decomposed body. Judge Richard Neville had warned the jury that the photographs would be distasteful, but said that they were necessary evidence. As the photographs were displayed, and as Dr Stein testified, Cynthia and David opted to leave the room. They stood on the stairwell outside and sobbed quietly. Unsurprisingly, the jurors reacted strongly to the photographs. One juror concealed her eyes as another covered her mouth in disbelief. Dr Stein said that large portions of Jacqueline's body were far too decomposed by the time the autopsy was performed on the 15th of September 1988. There has always been much debate over the admissibility of graphic photographs of the victim during murder trials. It is commonly known that such photographs will inflame the juror so severely the defendant will be deprived of a fair trial. In fact, if the photographs lack probative value and will do little other than bring prejudice to the jury, then they should be excluded from evidence during the trial. Despite the fact that the graphic photographs of Jacqueline lacked probative value, they were still presented to the jury. We spoke with Rob Warden about this. There is really no justification for a jury ever to be shown photographs because the fact that the murder occurred is not in dispute. That is basically stipulated. Uh, to show the photographs, unless there's some relevance uh, to, to show, say, the mode of the murder or something that, uh, that, I mean, and even then it's questionable. I just basically think photographs never should be, uh, well, only in the, under the rarest of circumstances should photographs ever be introduced into the trial particularly of a brutally murdered child, uh, that's just, um, uh, you know, unconscionable that a jury has, uh, has to see that. And of course, it's uh, highly inflammatory and prejudicial. We also spoke with lawyer Bob Byman. Their timing was impeccable. They, on a Friday, just before the jury was recessing for the weekend, that's the time that they put in the 37 or whatever the number was, gruesome autopsy photos. 
So the last thing the jury saw uh, over before spending a weekend stewing in it was multiple pictures of this beautiful little girl as a maggot infested corpse. How could that not affect a human being who's being asked, now do you want to give justice or not? So uh, I give the prosecutors high marks on timing uh, and technique, low marks on uh, getting the right person to face justice. Dr. Stein described the jury that due to the temperature and humidity at the time of Jacqueline's disappearance, her decomposition was in the reasonable stage for a five and a half day period. He detailed how Jacqueline's neck was too decomposed to show any medical evidence of strangulation, but said the fact that a rope was found wrapped tightly around her neck was evidence enough. He also described how less decomposed portions of her body, including her arms, legs and hands, showed no evidence of binding and said that her head showed no indication of trauma or fractures. Additionally, he said that there was no evidence that her mouth had been gagged or taped. In terms of sexual abuse, Dr. Stein said that he could not rule it in or rule it out due to the fact that Jacqueline's body was so decomposed. Under cross-examination, attorney Hyman asked Dr. Stein whether, theoretically, Jacqueline could have been dead only four days at the time of the autopsy, which would have placed her death after the time that Everett Mann had testified that he saw David at the crime scene. Dr. Stein confirmed that it was possible, adding that it could have been four days, six days or even eight days. Following Dr. Stein's testimony, a number of reporters, including Paul Hogan, wrote about the inflammatory nature of the graphic photographs. His testimony had been at the end of the week, meaning that jurors had to go home and mull over what they had seen, the sight of a little girl, decomposed beyond recognition, among the weeds. Jenny Han, a forensic scientist at the Illinois State Police Crime Lab, testified that she had discovered blood under seven of Jacqueline's fingernails and that were blood type O. The same blood type as Jacqueline, her mother and her brother. Jacqueline had blood type A. Two small blood stains had been found on Jacqueline's pillow and Han testified that these two were blood type O. The prosecution failed to question Han regarding the age of the blood stains but it had been determined that the stains were old. The prosecution quickly switched from the blood evidence to the forensic examination that had been conducted on rectal and vaginal swabs. Han informed the courtroom that both had tested negative for blood and semen. She also testified that she had discovered hairs in the trunk of the Dwallaby car which were visibly comparable to Jacqueline's. Jacqueline's underwear and the pyjamas could not be forensically examined due to weathering and maggot predation. However, Several strands of brown hair, presumably from Jacqueline's head, were discovered inside the underwear, alongside a Caucasian pubic hair, which had not come from Jacqueline. Under cross-examination from Mechik, Han said that a hair had been found on the rope that was found wound around Jacqueline's neck. This hair could not have come from a Caucasian person. The testimony next focused on fibre transfer. Han confirmed that she found no evidence of fibres from the mat in the trunk of Dewallaby's car on Jacqueline's nightgown. She also admitted that she had not compared the hair found in the trunk with Cynthia's hair, despite the fact that a white hair net belonged to Cynthia was also discovered inside the trunk. While the testimony from Han and cross-examination by Mechik raised many questions as to whether the hair intertwined in the rope could have come from Hernandez, the testimony from Ralph Mayer which followed would eliminate that doubt. When he took to the witness stand, he told the courtroom that the hair could not have come from Hernandez. Mayer also testified in regards to hairs that had been discovered on the mat in the trunk of Wallaby's car, as well as hair taken from the bedspread found with Jacqueline. 
He examined two microscopic slides and searched for a fibre transfer between the mat and the bedspread to see if there was any transfer. For such a transfer to occur, there would have had to be contact between both items. He told the jury, In my opinion, I did not observe any fibre transfer between the black mat and the sheet. Up until this point in the trial, many people had believed that there was some kind of fibre transfer evidence that linked Cynthia and David to the murder. In fact, Channel 7's Dick Johnson had erroneously reported that the prosecution would be presenting some damning evidence in the form of fibre transfer, but this testimony proved otherwise. On the morning that Jacqueline was reported missing, investigators noticed that her bed sheets were missing from her bed. Cynthia told them that she had washed the sheets the night before, but she'd been too busy to put the clean sheets on, meaning that Jacqueline slept on a stripped bed. This was something that the prosecution focused on throughout the trial. They argued that the bed had been stripped after Cynthia and David killed Jacqueline in an attempt to cover up the crime. However, their theory was counteracted by the Dwallaby's next-door neighbour, Mary Talbert. When Mary testified, she said that when she went out to hang her own washing on the 9th of September, she noticed that the Wallabies had already had their sheets hanging up on the line. Furthermore, the sheets weren't just Jacqueline's. She spotted several bed sheets, including one with little blue and red prints that she positively identified as belonging to Davy. She said that there was another sheet with the little prints, but she couldn't positively identify them. Mary told the jury that the 9th of September had been a pleasant day, so she spent most of the day in her back garden with her daughter Megan. She noted that when she brought her own sheets in that evening, the Dewallaby sheets were still outside on the clothesline. Mary also told the jury that when she left for work the following morning at 6.15am, she noticed the Dewallaby Chevy was parked in the same location as the evening before, across the driveway. This made four separate eyewitnesses I placed the Dwallaby car in the same awkward position as the night before. A portion of the trial focused heavily on the shattered basement window. The prosecution had argued that it couldn't have possibly been the entry point because there appeared to be a layer of undisturbed dust on the inside windowsill, as testified by below the patrol officer, Donald Woodark, the first officer who had arrived at the Dwallaby's home on the morning Jacqueline was reported missing. During his testimony, Officer Woodark told the jury that he had seen a uniform layer of dust on the inside windowsill of the basement window. According to Officer Woodark, he quickly deduced that this layer of dust indicated that nobody had entered through the shattered window. Under direct examination, O'Brien showed Officer Woodark a photograph taken of the shattered window from the inside. He carefully avoided asking Officer Woodark whether the photograph showed any of this so-called dust, but asked him whether this was the area where the dust had been seen. Officer Woodark responded that it was. O'Brien then asked him to circle where he had seen the dust, and he circled the window ledge. Under cross-examination, the defence refuted this and stated that the dust had not even been mentioned until 17 days after Jacqueline was reported missing. The purpose of an accurate police report is to preserve any details that could later be used for a follow-up investigation. The so-called dust had not been even mentioned in the initial police report despite the fact Officer Woodark had been trained in the importance of writing police reports while training at the police academy. Under cross-examination, Mechik said, It is not there. That, of course, is an important fact, is it not? To which Officer Woodark replied, Now I believe it is. Yes, sir. Mechik rebutted with, At the time it was important to you because you stated in your mind it could have been where entry had not been made, correct? In fact... Officer Woodard could even reference the shattered window as the point of entry five times in his initial report. 
If he was so sure that nobody had entered through the shattered window at the time, why did he refer to it multiple times as the point of entry, and why did he not mention the alleged dust that he had claimed was the evidence that nobody had came through the window? Officer Woodark testified that 17 days later he wrote a second report after Chief Fisher told him to. He claimed that Chief Fisher asked him to include all of the detail that he could think of, and this time, Officer Woodark mentioned the dust for the first time. The first report that he wrote was never signed off by a supervisor, but the second was. Going back to the alleged dust, Metchik suggested that where Officer Woodark had circled show a reflection from the window. Unwavering in his assertion that he saw dust on the windowsill, Officer Woodark said it was possible that there was a reflection from the window, but there was still dust there. We spoke to Bob Byman about this. The officer who originally did his report didn't mention dust on the windowsill. 17 days later, his supervisor said, go back and fill in details. Now, whether or not it was whispered and put in dust, I don't know, but I suspect it was. And he filed a supplemental report in which now he recalled that that day he observed uh, an undisturbed layer of dust on the windowsill. One photo had been taken of the windowsill. The photo was argued by Maychuk and Hyman to simply show a reflection of the sun. No dust, just a reflection. It was argued by the state, no, that's dust. So the jury had lawyers on each side saying, this is what it is, this is what it is. And the jury had to decide which of either of those they wanted to believe. That's what juries do. So there was no real problem with that. The thing that I don't think Hyman and Maychuk did enough to underscore was that the original crime investigator on the scene, the guy who filed this supplemental report, if he had thought that the layer of dust was significant enough to include it in his report even 17 days later, he could have taken more than one photo. He could have taken photos that would have been absolutely conclusive about what it is. He also could have put on a glove and run his finger in a section of it uh, to show uh, that somebody would leave a mark if they touched it. He also had an electrostatic uh, print lifter in his trunk among his tools that's basically used to take impressions of footprints in dirt. But he could have used that to take an impression of the dust, which would have actually created a record of the dust and how thick it was. So there were all kinds of things he could have done if he thought he had made a significant finding. He did none of that. And I don't think that was really adequately argued by the lawyers. On the witness stand, Officer Woodark also admitted that when he arrived at the crime scene, he had picked up several pieces of broken glass that had come from the shattered window and had piled them up on top of each other before the crime scene was photographed. This, of course, is not proper crime scene protocol and severely contaminated the crime scene. As mentioned earlier, Officer Woodark was a patrol officer. He had no formalised training in crime scene investigation. Despite this, however, he should have known to preserve the crime scene. This is what Bob Byman had to say about the mishandling of the crime scene. It was mishandled because I doubt that Midlothian has had more than, well, I don't know how many murders they've had, but they haven't had many. They were just, they weren't in the business of properly uh, processing these kinds of crime scenes. And it was sort of like, uh, well, I mean, it, it was just a joke. People were just tramping in 
the police never took charge. They let family members come in with food and tidy up the apart the house. Uh, their friends and family came and lysoled down all of the counters within the day of the disappearance. So part of it was the police didn't know what they had in their hands. They didn't know if it was a kidnapping or a crime or just a runaway or whatever. And by the time they knew that they had a murder and by the time real law enforcement got involved, it was too late. Officer Woodark further testified there was a metal rack directly underneath the window. He described how there was two boxes with paper sticking out on a bottom rung of the metal rack. He claimed that they were undisturbed. Under cross-examination by the defence, Officer Woodark admitted that one box to the right of the window had stress marks. The defence contended that these marks very possibly could have come from somebody stepping onto the box. Officer Woodark also confessed that there was a scuff mark on the wall underneath the window on the inside of the house. When questioned about the demeanour of Cynthia and David when he first arrived at the home that morning, Officer Woodark said that Cynthia appeared to be emotionally distraught. He described at one point how he overheard her vomiting. David, he said, appeared to be somewhat calm. Stephen Kosciuszki, the special FBI agent who had been in charge of the investigation, testified that he had discovered one of the basement windows unlocked. This basement window was facing the backyard, while the shattered one had been closer to the front of the house. State Police Evidence Technician Hayden Baldwin had been called to testify as a prosecution witness. Baldwin told the jury that he was called to the Duwallaby household after David had called 911 to report Jacqueline missing. He reiterated what Officer Woodark had already testified. There was a layer of undisturbed dust on the windowsill. Baldwin confirmed to the jury that he had only taken one photograph of the shattered window. He had taken the photograph from the inside of the window with the curtains half-closed. The photograph of the shattered window was entered as evidence and upon viewing it, the defence argued that it showed the reflection of the sun on the windowsill as opposed to dust. According to Baldwin, when he pulled the curtains all the way open, he saw more dust as well as cobwebs in the corner of the window. However, under cross-examination by the defence, he confessed that he had taken no photographs of the so-called undisturbed dust or the cobwebs. He additionally claimed that there was so much dust that he drew a line in the dust with his finger, but once again he took no photographs. He didn't explain why, if there was so much dust, he didn't preserve the dust with evidence tape or an electrostatic dust lifter, which he had brought along with him to the crime scene. He had taken a number of photographs in Jacqueline's bedroom as well, but they were exposed to sunlight and because of this they were only partially visible. If there certainly had been a layer of undisturbed dust over the apparent entry point, then one would imagine that this vital piece of evidence would be one of the first things a police officer and an evidence technician would notice, report and photograph. There was no mention of any dust in Baldwin's crime scene report and no photographs. On the witness stand, Baldwin was essentially forced into saying that he had not preserved any of the so-called dust. And I think that, I mean, this is a phenomenon that, hey, look, if this was so important, you should have noted it at the time. Uh, I mean, it's obviously very important. Now, if you didn't memorialize it at the time, there must have been a reason. 
And of course, my suspicion of the reason is the, the dust was not there. <laughs> it's very simple. Uh, and uh, it was fabricated after the fact. Uh, but it had, but the evidence of the dust uh, had no credibility given the fact that it was not memorialized uh, or photographed at the time. Uh, and this is what I mean when I, when I said earlier that of the hundreds of cases I've looked at, I've never seen a competent police investigation. This is what I mean. Things like that. That was not competent. If the dust was there, it should have been memorialized uh, uh, contemporaneously. And the fact that it was not renders that uh, bit of evidence absolutely useless. While testifying, Baldwin had also said that he had checked for fingerprints on the front door, the door to Jacqueline's bedroom, and the lock on the basement window. He said that he had only discovered smear marks, which were overlapping fingerprints, which could not be tested. He had also dusted the torn basement window screen for fingerprints, hair and fibres, but found none. One latent print had been discovered on a shard of glass from the shattered basement window, the fingerprint was analysed and found not to be a match for David, Cynthia, Anne or Davy. Baldwin had failed to dust for fingerprints in Jacqueline's bedroom, the rear door and the patio door. Oh, we did know the crime scene, yes. I mean, the, the, the absolute incompetence here. Uh, the, the police didn't uh, protect the crime, the integrity of the crime scene. The, the Jacqueline's room from which she disappeared uh, was made up. At one point, her, her grandmother and someone else actually repainted it. Um, the glass uh, that, was, that fell inside from the broken window was thrown into the garbage. Some of it was recovered, some of it wasn't. There was other evidence that was uh, lost uh, immediately because it was not properly preserved, and, uh, you know, just all sorts of things uh, went wrong. But no, it was uh, police incompetence uh, from the very beginning. The prosecution had also argued that due to the position of the glass scattered around the broken window, it looked as though the window had been smashed from the inside. They claimed that David or Cynthia had smashed the window to create a fake entry point for the intruder theory. Ralph Mayer, a forensic scientist at the Illinois State Crime Lab, who had reconstructed the broken window from the DeWallaby's home to determine if it was shattered from the inside. Ralph Mayer, a forensic scientist at the Illinois State Crime Lab, had reconstructed the broken window from the DeWallaby's home to determine if it was shattered from the inside of the house or from the outside. To determine a direction of force on a window, glass needs to be collected and reassembled to then determine where the stress marks were. He testified, On the radials, the right angle stress marks are on this side. In other words, they mean that the force to break this window had to be coming from outside. He further explained how some of the glass ended up on the grass outside the window, which was what had led investigators to believe that the window was shattered from the inside. He described how when glass breaks, especially in a window that is being held very rigidly, it has a snapping tendency. As glass is pushed and it breaks, there is a tendency for it to snap back. And naturally, there is a tendency of glass particles and glass pieces to come back out. He said that while most of the glass will go in, some of the glass will naturally spring back. He suggested that another cause for glass springing back with the force would be if somebody had used a tool, 
which was pushed through the glass and then withdrew it, bringing some glass back. Dr. Henry Lee, the director and chief criminalist for the Connecticut State Police and distinguished member of International Association of Science, testified next. Dr. Lee and Dr. Peter DeForest had been retained to examine the glass from the basement window that Ralph Mayer had reassembled. He testified that with the reassembled glass, he could draw certain conclusions based on the radial factor and concentric fracture. He said that he could also draw certain conclusions on the force, direction of the force, and the amount of force. He told the jury that based on his findings, the window had been smashed from the outside, in the left side of the window, creating a radial fracture. The doctors had also recreated the basement window four times for an experiment, which they then smashed with a crowbar. The experiment was to study which direction the fragment would go when the window was smashed. Their experiment showed that some glass fell inside the window while some fell outside the window. The majority of the large fragments of glass fell inside, but he said that the smaller fragments were more likely to stay either in the windowsill or next to the windowsill because they were much lower in weight. And it's incontrovertible. The the evidence technician at the scene Uh, there was a large amount of glass lying outside the window. Now, usually when you break a window, most of the glass goes in the direction of the force. So it was not unreasonable for this evidence technician to say, hey, there's something weird here. There's this this glass outside, uh, too much glass outside and not enough inside. What he apparently didn't take into account is that somebody could have broken a fairly small hole uh, in the window, or broken it, and then maybe picked out the glass and, and, and left it lying outside, uh, which evidently uh, is what happened. But the science of glass brace breakage is rather simple and direct and incontrovertible. You can tell from the concentric breaks, you don't really even need to be a scientist to figure this out, which direction the force came from. So there was no question that this window was, in fact, broken from the outside. The little girl who had been sexually assaulted by Perry Hernandez in Blue Island was now seven years old, and she was called to testify for the defence of Cynthia and David. In a direct manner, the little girl referenced to the 1st of September 1989 as the night she got stole. She said, I got stole. He took me out of my bed. Cynthia, who was holding David's hand, found it difficult not to cry as she heard those words. The young girl had been abducted from her attic bedroom that she shared with her twin brother. Three other siblings, her parents and the family's dog, all remained asleep in the house throughout the ordeal, sitting with her elbows resting on the stand and her head resting on her hands. The girl described how Perry Hernandez had placed his hand over her mouth so that she could not scream and picked her up and carried her down the stairs and out the side door of the house. Speaking in a hushed tone, the little girl said, He covered my mouth so I couldn't scream, and picked me up and carried me down the stairs and out the side door. From here, Hernandez carried the girl through a trailer park, through the weeds to underneath a bridge by the Cal Sag Canal. On the way, she recalled that Hernandez tripped over a car door, which had been discarded in the weeds. Here, 
Hernandez removed the girl's pyjamas and underwear and made her put on a bathing suit that he had stolen from her home. Underneath the bridge, Hernandez held out a string and showed it to the little girl, as if to threaten her with it. Defence attorneys told the little girl that she would not need to relive the bad things that happened that night, but they did ask her if she recognised the man. She said, I knew he looked like the person across the alley. After the assault, the girl was allowed to walk home, and when she entered the house, everybody was still asleep. She said that she washed her face and then went upstairs to her bedroom and told her twin brother that she had been stolen. The girl had suffered injuries to her buttocks, lower back, and had vaginal bruising. After confiding in her brother, the girl then told her mother what had happened, but she initially disregarded her story as fantasy. However, she soon noticed that the television would not turn on, and it was discovered that the main part of the house had been switched off. Her mother then noticed the tomatoes and silverware had been scattered across the kitchen floor, and the kitchen screen had been taken off. When they went to bed the night before, the tomatoes had been lined up on the kitchen windowsill, and the silverware had been left on the sink, directly below the windowsill. At this point, her mother gave more credence to her daughter's claims. She took her to the bathroom and noticed the plethora of cuts and bruises. She immediately woke up her husband and called police. During the investigation, police discovered the young girl's underwear and a bathing suit. Beside the Cal Sag River, the young girl had identified Hernandez as the man who abducted her and sexually assaulted her from a police lineup at the Blue Island Police Department. At the time, Hernandez had lived across the road from her family and was the cousin of one of her friends. The little girl said that the week before Hernandez had abducted her, she saw him staring at her while she was playing in the yard. When her mother testified, she said that when she first reported the abduction to police and they arrived at the home to question them, they first of all suspected that the little girl's father may have been involved. It was only when they discovered the girl's underwear down at the bridge that they began to consider a stranger abduction had taken place. Blue Island detective Joe Cosman next took to the witness stand to say that the area where the girl had been taken was only around a mile from where Jacqueline's body had been discovered a year beforehand. While the cases were remarkably similar, it also proved that a young child absolutely can be snatched from their bed in the middle of the night, right under their parents' noses. Investigators had always stated that they considered it unbelievable that such a thing could occur, thus leading them to the conclusion that Cynthia and David had to be involved. This child's testimony was solid evidence that it could happen, and that it did happen. Julie Oster, Hernandez's girlfriend who lived close to the Dwallabies at the time of Jacqueline's abduction, was called as a defence witness. She told the jury that at the time of Jacqueline's abduction, Hernandez frequently stayed with her. She additionally said that in 1988 and 1989, she had owned a Chevrolet car. However, when questioned as to whether Hernandez had ever driven it, she said no. Assistant State's Attorneys Pat O'Brien and George Felchik attempted to point out the differences between the abductions. They argued that there was no trace of Hernandez anywhere in the Dewallaby household. They highlighted the fact that there were no footprints or fingerprints implying that Hernandez could not have been guilty of Jacqueline's abduction and murder. 
Furthermore, Hernandez had confessed to this abduction. He had given a detailed statement which read, After 5pm on Friday, September 1st, 1989, I had just gotten paid. I went to Haas's tap and then went to the Sitting Bull Tavern. I stayed there until about 5am and left. I went to the house at 13423 Francisco, three doors from my cousin's house, and I had seen a little girl there playing before. I pulled off the screen from the window at the back of the house. The window was open partially and I went in. I went to the basement and pulled down a lever and the power went off. I then went to the first floor and walked around. I took some girls' clothing, swimsuits and underpants, blue and green swimwear. I opened the door to the first floor and walked up a staircase to the second floor. I went into a bedroom and saw the little girl. I touched her leg and she moved. I pulled the blanket off her and pulled her up. She woke up and I put my hand over her mouth gently and whispered to her to keep quiet. I carried her down the stairs and out the side door. I carried her down to the railroad trestle near 126th. She kept asking me who I was. She sounded like she was crying. I kept telling her to be quiet. Once I tripped over what looked like a car door and we both fell. The little girl landed on her back and began to cry. I said I was sorry and she would be alright. When I got her to the canal, I carried her under the trestle. I put her up on a cement block. She was wearing a nightgown. Hernandez then described in graphic detail how he sexually assaulted the little girl. Before continuing, saying... She put her nightgown back on, she asked which way was home, and I pointed her in the opposite way so that I could escape. I ran home. One time, she said she thought she knew me, and I made up a name. Ralph Mayer had additionally examined the pubic hair found in Jacqueline's underwear, and it was his opinion that the hair was dissimilar to the known head and pubic hair standards from Hernandez. Dexter Bartlett, an evidence technician with the Illinois State Crime Lab, testified that he had been called to process the abduction scene at Blue Island, where he collected fingerprints from a number of items, including the screen, which had been removed from the kitchen window, the sink in the kitchen, and the washing machine in the basement. He took the latent prints to the Illinois State Crime Lab, where they were handed over to Joseph Ambrosic. He had been assigned to compare the fingerprints to the fingerprints of Hernandez. He found that three prints on the kitchen window and screen were made by Hernandez. Three prints on the sink were made by Hernandez, and one print on the washing machine was made by Hernandez. Officer Joe Cosman had worked on both the Dewalaby case and the Hernandez case. We spoke with him, and here's what he had to say. Yeah, here's the thing. Here's why I don't think Perry did it. Uh, there was rumors that he lived in Midlothian at the time. Uh, this was maybe a mile and a half, uh, maybe two miles west of where Jacqueline's body was found. In this case, Perry tried to break into two houses. He went to first house as he was taking the screen off. The father heard something turn on the light and Perry ran. He then goes to the second house. He gets in and he takes a little he takes her across the street to the canal, which is very close. I think he uh, he assaulted her somewhat. 
wasn't a full out, but it was still a sexual assault. And he passed out and she ran home. Uh, Perry was a drunk. And he'd get highly intoxicated when he would do this stuff. To get from Midlothian, he didn't drive. He had a suspended license. Not that means he never drove, but for the most part, he didn't drive. All his people, his girlfriend and everyone says he doesn't drive. And he only did, he did that stupid stuff when he got drunk. I don't think, in my feelings, that he could have got from Midlothian to the Canal Bank with Jacqueline without someone seeing it. You know, before the Dwallaby, and then my thing was, how the hell could somebody get into a house? Because there were like mom, dad, a dog, three or four brothers. And this guy climbs in through the kitchen window, knocks over dishes that were in the sink, knocks over tomatoes that were on the window ledge. He goes into the house. We find his pack of cigarettes on a table in the front room. He went downstairs, shut the electric off. We found his fingerprints all over that. He then goes upstairs, takes her, steps over the dog, and walks out. He And that was the prosecution's thing in the Dwalby, is, wait a minute. You get better each time you do something. You don't get worse. And this time, he left prints everywhere. He left his cigarettes. He left, you know, he left a girl live. You know, wow, yeah, it's shocking that it's, almost a year to the day, but is it a coincidence? What ties him to the Dwalby? There was really nothing. And then at some point after, in 03, uh, both myself and uh, Fabio Fabio Valentino went, uh, he was the first assistant of Cook County at the time. We went down to Menards and interviewed Barry Hernandez about this. No, he did not admit anything with this case. There were supposedly a couple of people in jail that said he had made statements. In fact, we also, we actually at one point had his cell wired up, his cellmate wired up and that proved unfruitful. He never, he never admitted anything on tape. The decision had to be made whether to call the Dwallabies to testify during the trial. And ultimately, they did not. Rob Warden explained why. They were, uh, you know, I think another aspect of this is that it is basically ineffective assistance of counsel. You know, right at the close of the uh, of the trial, uh, Ralph Maycheck, the lead counsel for David, uh, called uh, uh, several criminal defense lawyers in, in, in the city of Chicago and said, do you think I should put him on the stand or not? And in fact, one of these defense lawyers, a friend of mine said, well, have you prepared him to testify? No. Uh, he hadn't prepared him to testify. Well, in that case, uh, the decision has been made. You can't put him on the stand. Uh, that you have to, a, a criminal defense lawyer has to very carefully prepare a witness to testify for, uh, to avoid all of the pitfalls that, uh, of, of cross-examination. Um, and to fail to do that, to have not done it, basically precluded uh, putting uh, uh, David on the stand. Now, uh, of course, it was really, uh, uh, you know, it's obviously up to the defendant uh, whether or not to testify. But shortly before the Dewalaby trial, uh, there had been a wrongful, or a wrongful prosecution, not a wrongful conviction, of a, of a daycare operator named Sandra Fabiano. Uh, she had prevailed 
uh, without testifying. And David said after the fact, well, I looked at that, Senator Fabiano had not testified, the jury acquitted her, and I thought, uh, you know, on balance, the fact that, you know, you could be, uh, you know, you could be uh, tripped up on cross-examination, but it was better not to. I would have thought that ideally, uh, David and Cynthia could have been prepared very carefully to testify so that they could avoid the pitfalls that could arise during cross-examination and that they should have taken the stand. Now, juries definitely want to hear from an innocent defendant. Uh, I mean, there's just uh, uh, no question about it. But in this case, because Ralph Maycheck had failed to prepare David to testify, uh, it was simply out of the question. Couldn't do it. In the United States, uh, the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution uh, does a number of things, but one of them is that no one can be compelled to give testimony against themselves. And that, of course, there are similar provisions in the Magna Carta, and I'm sure that English law has something similar, although it's not called the Fifth Amendment, it's called something else, but it's got to be part of your charter or constitution because in the olden days, the king just tortured you until you said whatever he wanted. Uh, we don't allow people to testify against themselves unless they waive that right and agree to do it. So David and Cynthia had an absolute right not to take the stand. They also had the right to take the stand if they wanted to. In Cynthia's case, and this is somewhat interesting, if the state was so sure of their guilt, once the judge told them that he was directing a verdict for her, they could have called her. Uh, they could have compelled her to testify because she faced no risk of incriminating herself. She couldn't be charged with the crime. Uh, they didn't call her because they knew it wouldn't have been helpful. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Shattered Window. The Shattered Window is a completely independent podcast paid for out of our own pockets. If you'd like to support the show in return for loads of bonus content, behind the scenes, merch and more, then please check out The Shattered Window on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Also make sure you visit us at theshatteredwindow.com for more information about this episode and follow us on social media to keep up to date with the case and any developments. If you enjoyed The Shattered Window, it would mean the world if you'd left us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to support a show that you enjoy and can help us reach new listeners. Once again, thank you for listening and until next time, take care of yourselves, stay safe and have an amazing week.